invite you to take out your Bibles or a pew Bible and turn to Mark chapter 14. We'll be hearing this morning Mark 14, 53 through 72. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 64 of the New Testament section. As we prepare to hear God's Word, please pray with me. Send your Spirit among us, O God, as we hear and meditate on your Word. Prepare our minds to hear you speak and move our hearts to accept what we hear. Purify our will to obey in joy and faith. We pray all of this through Jesus Christ, your righteous servant and our faithful Lord and Savior. Amen. Mark 14, beginning at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you were talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed, and the servant girl on seeing him began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse. He swore an oath. I do not know this man you were talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus' betrayal and arrest, we must admit, were marked by a high degree of chaos. In addition to Judas' treacherous betrayal of our Lord with mock words 
and acts of friendship and respect. The scene also included things like the servant of the high priest getting his ear chopped off by a sword-wielding disciple and a man running naked through Gethsemane. Chaos. It might appear then that some semblance of order has resumed as Jesus' captors take him back into Jerusalem and seat him before all of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes who have assembled at the high priest's home. In truth, though, even in this scene, things remain chaotic, hurried, frenzied, harried. This is not a scene of a trial that has been carefully considered and calmly and coolly assembled in order to ensure that justice is accomplished. What we find here is a hastily composed court in a far from normal setting. Mark tells us that Jesus' trial before the Jewish ruling council, which is comprised of the ruling council is comprised of representative members of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, basically the ruling elite there in Jerusalem. They call this the Sanhedrin. Mark tells us that this trial took place at the chief priest's home, and he tells us that while he's telling us that Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, I want to pause here. We haven't even really started. I'm already pausing. But I want to point out that Mark has given us, by bringing Peter into the story at this moment, another one of his sandwiches. So he introduces Peter here so that we're thinking of Peter sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire, while we hear Mark's account of what happens to Jesus on the inside of the high priest's home. Mark will return soon enough to Peter And in that way, Peter's story functions like the bread in the sandwich. And Jesus' trial then functions as the meat in the middle. But like with the sandwich involving the woman who anoints Jesus, right, which gets sandwiched between the statements about those who are seeking to kill Jesus, Mark sets that up to see the contrast. Mark's done the same thing here. He wants us to see the remarkable contrast between Jesus' behavior in his trial and Peter's behavior in the courtyard. So basically, Mark wants us to understand that Peter is just as much on trial as Jesus is. At the same time, Jesus is going through his trial. So we are looking here not at just one trial, but at least at two trials in this passage. And as it turns out, This account is not an account just of two trials, but there are actually three trials happening in this scene, but we'll come to that soon enough. So now, that was the pause, now we return to this kind of continued chaos. Under normal, non-chaotic circumstances, if Peter was going to follow the temple guard to a normal assembly of the Sanhedrin for trial... He would have to follow them not to the high priest's home, but rather to the temple, because that's where the Sanhedrin normally gathered. But it's the middle of the night on the feast of the Passover. This is not a normal meeting of the Sanhedrin. It is, like I said, it's a chaotic, hasty gathering of what was likely probably not much more than a quorum of the ruling council. And so you can say it's all there, even though there might only be 23 out of the normal 71 members of the Sanhedrin. So the murderous wheels 
that had been slowly turning from the beginning of Mark's gospel. Remember, the Jewish authorities of all stripes have been wanting to kill Jesus from very early in Mark's gospel. Those murderous wheels that have been moving kind of slowly have suddenly started turning much more quickly. Judas had come to them and agreed to pay to betray Jesus. Now, tonight. So time is of the essence. They couldn't or they didn't want to wait for the normal assembly of the Sanhedrin in the temple. So they would gather who they could and they would get on with it where they could do it. So back in verse 1 of chapter 14, you'd have to turn back the page there if you want to see it. Mark tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, in verse 55, he tells us the chief priests, they're still looking for something. They're looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So, what we have here is a classic case in which the judge and the jury have already arrived at their verdict. He's guilty, deserving of death but they're looking for the crime. They are not looking for justice. They're looking for a lot of things. They're not looking for justice. They're just looking in the end for Jesus' death. Mark tells us that they look for testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they don't find any. And they don't find any only because the, the men who stand up to bear witness against Jesus end up contradicting one another. And according to Jewish law, contradictory testimony renders null and void all of the evidence of the witnesses who contradict one another. So, think of it this way. Probably all of you, your parents told you when you were little that it's easier to tell the truth than to remember all of the, the webs of, that we weave with our lies, right? And just tell the truth because it's way easier. So, what we have here is a bunch of men who can't keep track of the web because they're telling lies. And more than likely, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes have put them all up to it. They can't keep their story straight. And you have to remember this too. The Old Testament is clear about the penalty for bearing false witness. The one who bears false witness is to receive the punishment that was intended for the person accused of the crime. So in this case, if you're bearing false witness on a capital offense, you should receive the death penalty. So we can assume that these false witnesses were given some assurance that they would not be punished if they were caught. And some scholars actually pondered the probability that, like Judas, the false witnesses received a certain amount of, shall we say, financial incentive to come forward and bear witness against Jesus. And nevertheless, all of the scheming, plotting, conniving, maneuvering, none of it worked. Even the testimony of the guys who get close to speaking the truth is, for some reason, rendered inadmissible. They end up still contradicting one another. So, John's gospel, second chapter, records Jesus as saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The false witnesses alter the statement from an imperative, destroy this temple, to the first person, I will, destroy the temple, then they add details, that is made with hands, and then they add a few more words that don't exist in John's version, but we can't really be sure why their testimony fails to agree. 
But that bit of testimony is getting awfully close to the truth. Sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said, and it gets to the nub of what he was implying. More importantly, more than just getting close to the truth, though, it's getting close to the point. It's getting close to the point on which this whole thing hung. The implication was that the temple made with hands was like idols made with hands. It's idolatrous. And Jesus was going to build another temple that was not idolatrous. Now, even if the ruling elite were not privy to Jesus' words about the temple that he spoke in the parable about the fig tree, right? Fig trees, barren, fruitless, applies that to the temple. They were privy to his actions in the temple and his public words about the temple. You have made it a den of robbers. And Mark tells us there that their response is, they heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. But even more than that, so already, right, their, their foundation of their authority is getting, is getting trampled on by Jesus. But even more than that, the Jewish people of the first century expected the temple to be renewed to its former glory with the arrival of the Messiah. So all of this talk of the temple was pressing the ruling council nearer the mark. And in the end, if they couldn't find witnesses whose testimony would hold up, the high priest just decided he could make the defendant testify against himself. So standing in the middle where Jesus would have been seated, the high priest first tries to lull Jesus into the trap with some roundabout questioning. Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? Now, of course, though, Jesus has no need to answer because they've already canceled their own testimony. As it stands at that moment, they have nothing against Jesus. And as Isaiah prophesied, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so, as Mark says, he was silent and did not answer. But the high priest has had enough. So he asks Jesus point blank the question by which he believes Jesus will hang himself. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, blessed one here is the high priest's way of avoiding saying the divine name. He doesn't want to say, are you the son of Yahweh? So he says, blessed one. Jesus does the same thing in his response when he says the power. The power is his way of getting around saying the divine name. It's common in the first century. But the title, Son of the Blessed One, was more than likely, mostly in the high priest's mind, a messianic title. He's not driving home yet the question of Jesus' divinity. The high priest wants Jesus, with his own mouth, to testify that he is the Messiah. And that would be enough. Because there's no way, so they think, that Jesus could ever back up such a claim. And as William Lane described the situation, Judaism expected the Messiah to provide proof of his identity. A Messiah imprisoned, abandoned by his followers, and delivered helpless into the hands of his foes represented an impossible conception of the Messiah. 
Anyone who in such circumstances proclaimed himself to be the Messiah could not fail to be a blasphemer who dared to make a mockery of the promises given by God to his people. If Jesus claims to be the Messiah, he will have as good as hung himself. Now, friends, everything for everyone in Mark's gospel has pressed toward this precise moment. The question of Jesus' identity has been hanging heavy in the air from the beginning of Mark's gospel. And while Jesus did not deny that he was the Messiah when Peter professed that he was the Messiah, he also didn't take up and use the title for himself. So up to this point, Jesus has not outright claimed that he was the Messiah. And now Jesus sits surrounded by the most powerful men in Jerusalem, at least the most powerful Jewish men in Jerusalem, who hold his life in his hands, and he's faced with this pressing question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? But the agony of Gethsemane has passed. The moment has arrived. And so Jesus simply said, I am. Ego eimi. There it is. He said it. He is God's Messiah. Now, whether or not Jesus intended those words, ego eimi, those are the Greek words used to translate the divine name, in God's self-revelation to Moses at the burning bush, whether or not Jesus intended ego eimi to communicate his divinity is uncertain. But what follows seals the deal as far as the chief priests, elders, and scribes were concerned and should seal the deal for us as well. Jesus returns again. He has said, I am the Messiah, but he returns again to the, the title Son of Man, which he's been more comfortable with throughout. And now he does another sandwich. He sandwiches a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, seated at the right hand of power, of the power. He sandwiches that between an initial reference to Daniel 7, the Son of Man, and then another phrase from Daniel 7, coming with the clouds of heaven. So you got Daniel, Psalm 110, Daniel. Now again, he's interpreting all of this in relation to himself, as he's been doing all evening. Now he's saying that Psalm 110 speaks about him, about Jesus sitting at God's right hand and, and more than implying that he himself will be or already has been granted divine privileges, authority, and even nature. That reading of Psalm 110 would have been more than enough to convince the ruling council of his blasphemy, but the reference to Daniel is the icing on the cake. And this is why. The immediate context of the Son of Man passage in Daniel 7 is a heavenly trial. So this actually is Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning. A stream, of fire to issue, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. 
And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. Now I said earlier, this was the account not just of two trials, Jesus' trial and Peter's trial. This is an account of three trials. With his assertion that he is Daniel, son of man, who comes with the clouds of heaven, Jesus has declared that it is not ultimately he who is on trial, but rather it is the Jewish ruling council and the high priest who are on trial in God's heavenly court. In those few words, those references to Daniel 7, Jesus has rolled back the veil, and we find that the Ancient of Days has convened his heavenly court. And the very people who are supposed to to recognize, know the Messiah when he comes, and then lead God's people into submission to his kingly rule when he comes, they are holding a show trial to to get him killed. And I'll top it all off. In the immediate context of Daniel's vision is also a beast, a beast that has ten horns on its head, and then another one, as Daniel's watching, another horn sprouts a little horn and begins blaspheming. So these are actually the next words in Daniel's vision, picking up where we left art. The court sat in judgment, the books are opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words, actually they're, they're blasphemous words, great in their, ugh, great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Now, this wouldn't happen until AD 70 when the temple goes down and it's all burnt to the ground. But Jesus is implying that in reality, in reality, as judged by the Ancient of Days who sits upon his heavenly throne with his court assembled, it is the high priest who is guilty of blasphemy and who is doomed for judgment. It's not Jesus, the Son of Man, to whom the Ancient of Days will give an everlasting kingdom, who is guilty of blasphemy. It's the high priest. But the blasphemous horn of the high priest responds this way. He tore his clothes, and he said, why do we still need witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And the council never pauses to consider the possibility that Jesus might be who he said he was. Think back to Mark 8. Preached on it a long time ago. I used that example of Alex Honnold climbing the wall and the crux of all cruxes. Here's their crux. They never stopped to consider that Jesus might be who he says he was. Instead of opening their eyes to see who sits before them, This theme of blindness that has run through Mark's gospel as well, they they are obstinately and willfully blind. And all of them condemned him as deserving death. And then in order to more publicly repudiate Jesus and what they believed were his blasphemous claims, they made their rejection of him visible by spitting on him, blindfolding him, striking him, and commanding him to prophesy certainly the Surely the Messiah, even blindfolded, should be able to prophesy who's beating them. That's the idea. Never mind that Jesus' thrice-repeated prophecy concerning his betrayal and his being handed over to the elders and the chief priests and the scribes who would beat him and have him killed was being fulfilled in real time. Never mind that. 
Never mind that in Jesus' suffering, a prophecy of Isaiah was being fulfilled. I give my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace or spitting. And never mind that Jesus' prophecy about Peter's thrice-repeated denial of him was being fulfilled in real time right there in the courtyard in the context of that third trial that was playing out that very evening. And so Mark wants us clearly to see the contrast here. As New Testament scholar James Dunn bluntly put it, in stark contrast to Jesus, who is inside before the high priest, the most powerful Jew in Israel, Peter stands outside, quailing before a female servant, a person of no power. And once again, as we watch Peter go from one cowardly denial to the next, we watch him go from feigning broad ignorance, I don't know what you're talking about, to a more specific denial, I do not know this man who you are talking about, backed up with curses and oaths, it's important for us to remember or to consider Mark's point in preserving the account of Peter's fall, which we should remember was preserved by Peter himself, who probably told it to Mark, and who probably said, you know, you should probably include this. Surely, We are to see the sinful cowardice of Peter on full display. He's not trying to hide anything. wants us to see it, particularly as it is contrasted so clearly to his former braggadocious, you know, I'm courageous right there, all the way to death. In this moment, Peter, and Peter wants us to see it by telling it to Mark. Mark wants us to see it by recording it. In this moment, Peter was living out Jesus' words of warning from back there when Peter said, you're the Messiah. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We're supposed to see all of that, but surely Peter and Mark have preserved this account by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not so that we can kind of dump on Peter in this moment but so that we can learn something of what we're called to and so that we can see again displayed before us most brilliantly the immensity of God's grace. So first of all, lest we look at Peter and we're tempted to think we might have done something else, Calvin reminds us of this. Peter's fall, which is here related, is a bright mirror of our own weakness. We can't go imagining that we would have done everything else. It's a mirror of our weakness. But this story is related that we might indeed behave very differently than Peter. That's the point of recording. One of the points of recording is it so that we will behave differently than Peter when we are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ, even in the most harrowing circumstances. And we'll do that not in our own power or our own strength, but rather in the strength of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who dwells within us, and we'll do it by his grace. Mark very likely wrote his gospel for readers who were living in the context of Roman persecution. 
So the implicit message to not only Mark's original audience who was facing those kinds of harrowing circumstances, but his implicit message to the church of all times and all places is a clarion call. If you link this story to the one that happened in the garden, it's a clarion call to the fervent prayer of the calm of the garden so that when you get to the high priest's courtyard, you are already strengthened by God to stand firm there. Not, again, by your own strength, not by your own courage, but rather by the strength and courage that is yours through your union with Jesus Christ that is nurtured in prayer. But the story of Peter's fall is recounted not only to teach us what we should do and what we should not do, but also to remind us of the immensity of God's grace when we do fail. So it's very likely that some of the members of the church who were experiencing persecution under Rome had behaved just as Peter had done. They had probably denied their Lord to save their own necks. And so Calvin continues, he says, in Peter's repentance, a striking instance of the goodness and mercy of God is held out to us. The narrative, therefore, which relates to a single individual, Calvin says, contains a doctrine which may be applied to the whole church, and which indeed is highly useful both to instruct those who are standing and to comfort those who have fallen by holding out to them the hope of salvation. Calvin continues, Peter obtained his pardon by the fatherly kindness of God. And by this example, we are taught that we ought to entertain confident hope through, though though our repentance be lame. Those are Calvin's words. We, We ought to entertain confident hope, though our repentance be lame. For God does not despise even weak repentance, provided that it be sincere. So that is to say, Peter did not merit God's pardon by his repentant tears, but rather his repentant tears were themselves the gift of God's fatherly love and grace to him. And friends, here's the glorious good news. If Peter Our Lord needed one, one witness, one martyr to stand up. Peter failed. But if Peter could be reconciled to his Lord and his heavenly Father by that internal working of the Holy Spirit, so can we. Friends, so can we. By God's grace and the work of his Spirit, We have this account of Peter's fall, and then we'll get to it, the beautiful account of his reconciliation already in this text, the beautiful account of his repentant tears. So, when we ask in our song of response, which we are going to sing right now together, when we ask, can there be mercy reaching even me, we can be assured that it is indeed the answer. The answer is correct. God the just, his wrath forbears. Me, the chief of sinners, spares. Praise and thanks be to God.